Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. It's such a delight to be with you here um, and to learn from Rabbi Ozerowski, a rabbi who I've known for a long time and admired so greatly for his scholarship and for his um, and for his model on, of chesed. Um, and he's got a wonderful book on chesed. And so it's great to be with you. And it's great um, to be with the ATA community and Rabbi uh, Solomon Grunewald, who was my delightful host at ATA in Denver just a few months ago. Uh, so it's great to be with you again. And all of you here, and I'm going to pass it over today. Thank you, Reb Shmuley. Um, uh, I'm Rabbi Solomon Grunewald of the Hebrew Education Alliance, a, a conservative synagogue in Denver, Colorado. And we're proud to partner with VBM in providing educational opportunities for our community and communities around the country. And uh, I wanna welcome you to this program today with Rabbi Joseph Ozerowski, um, whom I've uh, known only uh, through his book, which uh, sits on my shelf near, near my desk, uh, in my collection of, of uh, pastoral care resources. Uh, and I'm eager to learn uh, with him and from him. Uh, and I had a particular interest in participating today uh, because of my own personal experience with grief and loss. Uh, my wife, Melanie, and I uh, have three children. Um, we have twins who are now 14, year old, 14 years old, Hannah and Micah. And they had an older brother named Kobe. Uh, who died four years ago. Uh, Kobe was uh, diagnosed when he was 11 years old with a um, glioblastoma, brain tumor. Uh, it was not curable. Uh, and uh, through intensive treatment and surgeries, uh, he managed to survive with the tumor for, uh, two, for 22 months, um, frankly, longer than, than we were told to expect. And um, uh, he died uh, seven weeks after we celebrated his bar mitzvah, um, which he um, faced knowing that he was dying. And um, so my family and I have been through uh, quite a, a grief journey. And I guess the reason I really wanted to be here and what I want to um, share with you is uh, I want to learn with Rabbi Ozerowski and, um, and to say to all of you who, if you've I've been through something like that, um, that it is possible to embrace life once again. It is possible to find joy again, um, and uh, even with grief. And, uh, and so uh, without further ado, I want to introduce uh, Rabbi Ozerowski. Um, you may have read his bio, but I just want to share with you that he is the rabbinic counselor and chaplain for JCFCF in Chicago and Jewish chaplain for the North Shore Healthcare System. Uh, he is, has served as president of Neshama, Association of Jewish Chaplains. Uh, and uh, he's well known as a speaker um, on pastoral care, um, as well as a writer. Um, as I mentioned, uh, among his other books, um, the, uh, to Walk in God's Ways, Jewish Pastoral Perspectives on Illness and Bereavement, um, which I highly recommend. 
And um, Rabbi Ozerowski is a board certified chaplain uh, who has degrees from Loyola University, as well as ordination from Skokie Hebrew Theological College and a doctorate from uh, Lancaster Theological Seminary. So with that introduction, uh, it's my pleasure to um, hand it over to Rabbi Ozerowski. Thank you so very, very much, Rabbi Grunwald. And I'm really happy and honored that you're here. And to Rib Shmuley, who I've known for many, many years, it's really a joy and a delight to teach for you again and to learn with you. And some of you I know, some of you I don't know, but I'd love to get to know even in this very limited uh, framework. Let me give you a couple, one, one uh, revision of the North Shore hospital system I retired from last Friday. I need to really change that piece on the bio. The other piece I need to let you know is that I retired in the midst of a, of a bout of COVID. I had COVID last week. They cleared me so that I could work my last day in the hospital. Um, but I have some residual coughs, which was diagnosed today as asthma. I'd never had asthma before. But so if you see me coughing a little bit, I got my Earl Grey tea here, just like Captain Picard. And um, and I see the, the Star Trekkies are smiling. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I have Star Trek stories, which I'm not going to share today, but I do have some good ones at another uh, time. I can share some of my chaplain Star Trek stories. So if I cough a little bit or if I pause a little bit, that's the reason why. We have a, um, a small enough group that we can do some interaction if you'd like. So I invite you, if you have questions or you want to make comments, if it's on topic, um, use the chat. The chat's this wonderful little toy that we all learned about during COVID as we were forced to move pretty much all of life onto Zoom. Uh, and the chat, I've discovered as an educator that it's like when students pass notes in the classroom, but you get to look at the notes in the process. It's a lot of fun, actually. So please feel free to use the chat. I do try to monitor them and I will uh, take questions in the chat. Um, if you want to actually ask a question that's on topic while we're talking, if you raise your hand, uh, there's a little hand raising thing uh, in the reactions uh, icon. I'll, be, I'll try to take those as well. I try to monitor those. And so we'll try to interact. I mean, I could lecture and rave and rant for an hour, but <clears throat> given the fact that I'm still got this cough, it's probably better if I don't. So you can help me with Refor Shlema by interacting with me. There, Shmuley. Isn't that a great way to invite people to interact? I'm sick. Interact with me. You know, come on. So uh, <laughs> you, can all, you can all use that line. Okay. Let me tell you how we're going to deal with this text. This is one of the most dramatic and interesting and difficult passages in the whole Torah. Leviticus, the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. We're going to look at it on four different but intersecting levels. Textually. We're going to do a pretty close reading of certain parts of the text and the story. Contextually, and I'm going to be starting with that, the context of it. Halachically, there are some major halachic pieces that come out of this. And pastorally, which undergirds probably the last three quarters of my presentation. What are the pastoral implications of the loss, the death of Aaron's two sons? And what did they do? And how did this happen? And what do we get out of it? That's where I'm going to go with this text. Let's talk about the context first. Um, I have to give credit where credit is due. The paradigm I'm using for the context is not mine. It comes from Menachem Liebtag. It's a name familiar to some of you. Uh, Menachem Liebtag is one of the major teachers of Torah online. He's got tens of thousands of followers for his weekly uh, Torah shiurim. So I got this from him, though I'm going to do it my own way. 
what's going on in the text that we're about to read? I'm going to share the screen shortly, but only I'll talk for a minute first. The, the event we're about to see takes place during the first major national project of the Jewish people as they were a free people. So you all know the history, you know, there's the slavery in Egypt, the 10 plagues, the exodus, the sea splits. If you know your Torah, I don't have to tell this to you. If you saw the movie, the 10 commandments, which I love to diss uh, in when I talk, it's a lot of fun actually. Um, so you saw how the sea splits. And if you want to see where it split, go to Paramount Studios in Los Angeles. I did it when I was a scholar in residence in LA a couple of years ago. And you can see the parking lot they turned into the lot there. Afterwards, they get the Torah and they have this major project. They build the Mishkan, the tabernacle that served uh, our people in the desert and for a couple hundred years beyond. It was the first major national project. The story that we're about to read, the narrative we're about to study takes place at the dedication of the Mishkan. Now, here's the context. The dedication shows up in three places in the Torah, and I want to outline those. It shows up in Shemot at the end of the book of Exodus, where at the very, very book, they are building the tabernacle, and they put it together, and they dedicate it. A lot of nice stuff comes out of that. Uh, there's a whole other question which we're not going to talk about today is the relationship of the tabernacle to the golden calf. Uh, did the golden calf happen before the tabernacle or during the tabernacle? Was the tabernacle a response to the golden calf, and that brings up all sorts of great theological questions about the role of idolatry, and does God have a place? Does God have an image? How do we access a God? We're not going to talk about that today, but the context is important. It may have a, a an effect on what we're about to study, but I'll let you decide that for yourselves. So at the end of Exodus, the dedication, the Chanukah Tamishkan, takes place, the completion of the building, and at the end of that, Moses blesses them. Blessings are a big part of the story, too. The second part of the story, one, one part about one, one, one aspect of Exodus, why is it mentioned three times? And Liebtag's suggestion is that it fits into the context of each of these three books of the Torah. So in terms of Exodus, the whole journey of the Jewish people from slavery to freedom, this was the culmination of it. So an aspect of this dedication is appropriate at the end of Exodus. Here in Leviticus, since there's a ritual or religious aspect to it, it fits into the book of Leviticus, which is primarily a book of religious law and ritual law. It's called Torah Kohanim, the Torah of the priests in the uh, in Midrashic literature. And what we're going to be reading is a priestly story, or maybe that's one possibility of this. Leviticus deals a lot with areas of ritual purity and impurity. That becomes part of the story as well. <clears throat> The third time it's mentioned is in the book of uh, Numbers. Um, and there we have another interesting narrative. I could do an hour on each of these narratives. I'm not going to, unless Shmuley asks me some other time to come back. You'll see. All right, if you like it. Um, in what's called Chomesh Pikudim, the Midrashic name, the rabbinic name is the mustering of the troops where the journey is through the desert, moving forward. And the dedication story of the temple over there is the, is the, um, the, um, the gifts of the Nisim, the tribal princes that uh, come as part of the uh, dedication ceremony. It's the most boring part of the Torah. If you know your text, if you're a Torah reader, then you know it's the most boring part because each of the 12 tribal princes brings the exact same gift. 
over and over, the same paragraph. If you're a Torah reader, it makes it easier. But if you're sitting there listening to it, it's boring. Just the names are changed. Okay. Uh, and the classic explanation is that they came in a state of unity. They came together. And so uh, the unity is not often found amidst the Jewish people. Uh, certainly after this week's elections in Israel, that's something, another, another subject to talk about at some point. I'm just referring to it. So let's go back now. We talked about the dedication of the tabernacle as the major first national project of the Jewish people. Uh, the commentary Ketava Kabbalah, Hirsch of Mecklenburg, notes that the, um, and Hirsch notes this as well, that part of the purpose of this project was to build, bring the entire Jewish people together on building something that had several aspects, things that were essential, so food, and, and uh, other things, the sacrifices, things that were useful, the, de the, the, um, the, the building parts of the tabernacle, and things that were artistic. There were artistic aspects as well. The other piece to note, and I just want to note this without, and then we're going to go forward, is that from the building of the tabernacle, the rabbis derived the 39 categories of forbidden creative labor that color the Shabbat. So Shabbat observance is based on this building of the tabernacle as well. Okay. Now, the story that we're about to read, the specific aspect is the actual dedication or what we call the flipping on of the switch, where the temple becomes operative. There's a period of seven days. There's another period afterwards, the, the Yemei Miluim, where the sacrificial offerings were then offered. And then um, uh, after seven days, the temple, the Mishkan, becomes operative. Now, that's where we begin our story now. Are you all completely confused? I'm going to share my screen now. We're going to take a look at the text. Let me just find where we are here. Uh, one second. Here we are. You can all see what we're seeing. Okay, this is the end of chapter nine of Leviticus. Let's take a look at uh, starting from verse 22. Okay, this is uh, Mahon Mamri's translation. It's the 1917 JPS translation. Uh, forgive me for having to use it, but uh, that's what's easy to find online. Didn't get safaris but we'll, we'll take a look at it, okay? Verse 22. So after various sacrifices were offered, and Aaron lifted his hands to the people and blessed them. And we assume, according to commentaries, it was the priestly blessing, because that's his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you, etc. And he came down, and he came down from bringing the various offerings. Okay. Vayavo Moshe Aaron Elohim Oed, verse 23. And Moses and Aaron came down to the intent of meeting. Vayetu, they came out. Vayavachutam, they blessed the people as well. Lots of blessings going on here. Vayirakfot Hashem El Kolaam, and the glory of God appeared to the people. This was a nice, beautiful, wonderful moment. It's a national moment dedicating the national shrine based on a national project to the Jewish people. And this is really important context. Verse 24, this is a key verse. And a fire came out from before God. And consumed the altar. What did it consume? The, the offerings and the fat. And the people saw it. They shouted out, wow, cool, awesome. And they fell on their faces. So God has all sorts of audio-visual um, little tzatzkevach in, in God's briefcase 
And this was a case that they were being used. So this should be the happiest moment in the national history to that point. They're dedicating the tabernacle, national shrine, all this work, everybody participated, they were all involved and they offered the offerings and the offerings were zapped, means God accepts it. And the people go, wow, cool. It is cool actually. Okay, that's what happens. Now let's go to the next chapter. Let me open up chapter 10 here. All right, this, the text continues. And please note that in the Torah, there is no space between chapter nine and chapter 10. In other words, it's the same narrative. This is important, understanding the text of the story, the narrative, as well as the halacha and the pastoral aspects as well. And the sons of Aaron each took their censer. This is not the censer that tells you what not to read in the libraries, but it's something that holds uh, stuff spices. They put fire in it, probably coals. They put incense in it. Incense in it. And they come and they brought forth before God a strange fire. We don't know what that is, and that's one of the issues here. Which God did not, which they were not commanded to do. What happened? Take a look at this Hebrew here and the English. And there came forth fire before God. Those are the exact same words we had before in Hebrew and, of course, in English. And consumed them by and they died before God. We're going to do the narrative a little bit more before we uh, analyze it. But everyone was shall out on, and Moses says to Aaron, this is Moses lost his two nephews, Aaron lost his two adult children. This is what God said, saying, through those that are near me shall I be sanctified. And through all the people, in front of all the people shall I be glorified. This is God talking. And Aaron was silent. Aaron held his peace. Okay, um, we're going to come back to this text. I'm going to start a little bit further. What happens next? I'm not going to do this inside, but Moshe calls his other his other uh, nephews, uh, cousins, I should say, and said, "Carry your brethren out from the sanctuary. Take them out. Their bodies were dead, but they were not destroyed." And then let's go to verse six. Moshe says to Aaron and Itamar. He says to Aaron and uh, the brothers of the two young men who were killed here. He says to them, Do not let the hair of your heads go loose. Do not tear your clothing that you do not die. And that God not be angry with the congregation. But your children, the whole, but the, your brethren and your sister, and I guess, the whole house of Israel, let them cry. Let them cry and bewail the burning that um, God has kindled that God has wrought. Okay, we'll stop with the text here. Now we have to talk about what happened. Well, from the simplest point of view, in the midst of national uh, holiday, there came this national tragedy. Okay, so that's what we have at this point. I'm going to stop the sharing at this moment. We can see each other. So what happened here? What went wrong here? Okay. Um, there are multiple explanations, but they fall roughly into two categories. And I want to give you both categories here, okay? There's a whole school of thought that looks for lots of things that Aaron's sons did wrong, and they can find support in the text. 
And there's another school of thought, which is in the Talmud. It's in Zvachim Daf Kuf Tetzayin, if you want to find it. I didn't record it here, but I'll tell you about it, which suggests that they didn't do anything wrong, but they were caught up in a terrible tragedy. Even more than that, they may have been righteous and good people. And there's text to suggest that as well. So let me summarize this for you. Uh, the Talmud in Arab and Dafsamach Gimel says, Lometu uh, that what was their sin? What were they being punished for by being struck down? Because they paskin halacha, they had the chutzpah to rule on Jewish law in the face of Moses, their Rebbe. So um, that, that's one particular point of view. Rashi brings this down as well. Um, in other words, one of the major themes we might say of the Torah is human beings being God's partners. And according to this approach, they took it too far. That's the strange fire that they offered. That's one point of view. They took authority to themselves where they shouldn't have. Suggestion number two, and this is very much in the text. We'll see it. I'm not going to show it to you now. I don't want to flip back and forth and confuse everybody. But Rabbi Shmuel in the Talmud says they were shtuye and they were drunk. And the proof of this is that a little bit further down in the text, we'll see it in a little while, and we're not going to do it inside because we don't have time. Uh, in the middle of the narrative, God says that the priest should not officiate while intoxicated. Why is this in the middle of the story? And the rabbis, uh, Rabbi Shmuel suggests because that was the sin. They officiated drunk, they were struck down. Um, there are others, uh, the Kli Yakar, uh, Rav Lunchitz, who lived in the 15th, 16th centuries in Poland, who, by the way, has descendants who are still alive today. When I was serving as rabbi in New York, I met one of them. His name is Lunchitz. He lives in Brooklyn. He was raising money for something or other. Um, find a whole bunch of reasons that aren't really in the text. They didn't wash their hands. They weren't dressed right. They weren't dressed at all. They went in, in the nude. Um, they officiated before they got married, before they had children. Um, they were not just ruling on law in front of Moses, but they were saying, when will this Moses be out of the way so the young people can take over? All sorts, they look, look for all sorts of reasons. So there are many different reasons that are possible to find to say they did something wrong. Now, there's a second point of view. It's the one, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I run support groups, for families that have lost children, I usually don't spend a lot of time talking about the negative views for obvious reasons. It's not gonna be helpful if you're in a support group because you've lost a child. It's just not gonna be helpful. In this context, I can mention because we're learning the text and I wanna give you all points of view. But what I focus on from a pastoral point of view is the Talmud in Zvachim Daf Kuf Tetvav, which suggested they were Yidue Makom, which can roughly be translated, they were beloved and known by God. The Gemara Moed Katan in Kafchet says, Asu mitzvah Hashem, they did the mitzvah of God. Um, even Rashi on the spot, Rashi's not that favorable with them, but Rashi on the verse that we just saw, I shall be glorified, I, I, I will be sanctified by those who are closest to me. This is God talking. And Rashi explains that I'll be sanctified by the ones that I love and I care about the most, referring to Nadav and Avihu. So there's a whole school of thought that suggests that they didn't do anything wrong and that they may have been tzaddikim, they may have been wonderful people and good people and were trying to do the right thing. Um, so then how do you translate the strange fire? Well, um, I'll give you a suggested idea that it wasn't a sin. 
let's go back to the text. I'm going to share the screen again. This is something I referred to before. Come on. Here we go. I mentioned this in verse two. And fire came forth before God. These are the exact same words that were used when the fire was accepted and people shouted out hooray. The exact same words which suggest it was the exact same thing. In other words, we're talking about, it wasn't like there were two fires that came out. It was the same fire, which suggests that it was a tragic accident, that their sin was not a sin. They didn't do anything wrong. It was a mistake. They came too close and they were zapped by the divine fire that had accepted the sacrifices. So we're not talking about sin or misdeed. We are talking about a tragic accident, something that is just terrible and um, sometimes happens. And they were brought, they were, they were tied up in all that. So um, now we could spend a few minutes asking which explanation you like the best. And, um, but, I, but we don't have a lot of time. We have to finish at uh, four o'clock my time uh, on the hour, whatever your time happens to be. But if you have some reactions, by all means, put it in the chat. I'm happy to listen to them. Um, there are several ways to answer the question, which do you like the best? Which do you like the best in your heart? Which is closer to the text? That's arguable. Which is a more satisfying explanation? Um, and the answers to those might not all be the same. The answer that's closer to the text might not be the most satisfying. As a chaplain, I prefer the second point of view, which suggests that there wasn't a sin here and they didn't do anything wrong, but it was a terrible and horrible, tragic accident, the parents' worst nightmare. And that's how I teach it when I'm uh, doing a chaplaincy work. Okay, any other thoughts or comments on that before I go to the next section, the halakhic section? Um, yes, the, story, the, the, the issue of um, the, a couple times in the early prophets where uh, I think the guy's name was, there was one named Uza who tried to steady the wagon and fall down. And uh, did he do something wrong or was he just getting too close? Uh, similar, it's a great point, uh, Judy. And I believe it's, the, it's a similar set of dynamics and similar set of questions that comes up. Thank you for bringing that up. It's a really good point. Very, very good point. And I'm also, I'm kind of offended by the notion that, you know, here, here are two people God hasn't laid out all the rules of everything. Uh, they don't even know what all the ground rules are, and they stepped over a line they couldn't see. It's a valid point, which is why I'm inclined to give them more than just the benefit of the doubt. I'm inclined to say they didn't sin or do something terrible, but it's a tragic accident. They came too close, not realizing it. And these things happen in life. Um, it's, a, it's, tra it's a tragic consequence as opposed to being the consequence of sin. But like I say, there are different points of view. And if you're looking at a textual piece, you can actually argue that either way with proofs for both those. I gave you a couple of them actually on both sides of that. All right, thanks. I appreciate that, Judy. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's go ahead. This narrative, what we have so far, is a major halachic source for the laws of Aninut, which is Aninut is essentially the period of mourning here we get to the pastoral part, the period of mourning that follows the immediate death of a person. Um, the rest of it, by the way, Shiva and Shloshim and Kaddish, that's all rabbinic, that's all post-biblical. It's built on this chapter, but it all starts in this chapter. 
Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik has a major essay called The Halacha of the First Day. I may quote a little bit for you, but he notes that Aninut Yaraita, that biblical Aninut, is only the day of death. So the only day where some of the prohibitions uh, take place are on the day of death itself. The other things happen, let's say the funeral's not till the next day or two days later and the prohibitions still kick in, um, that's rabbinic. Shiva is rabbinic. Everything was added by the rabbis that was based on this. Um, essentially, the rule is that if you're an aninut, the halacha is that you are patur, you are absolved from doing mitzvot asesha's mangrama, which means davening, saying brachot, other things like that, uh, for one of two reasons, either because you're too busy making arrangements for the funeral, or because Rabbi Soloveitchik, and I'm going to show you the text in a minute, suggests that because your mind is so tied up, it's emotionally very, very jarring to lose somebody. Uh, I will tell you, when my father died in 2010, um, I knew the halacha. I mean, I, I, I wrote a book about it. So um, uh, it was to stop doing brachot was really strange to not put on till he died on a Thursday night. I missed it. By, I was somewhere between Chicago and St. Louis when he actually died. I thought I'd make it in time, but I didn't. It bothered me for a long time afterwards. Um, and then I knew what the halacha was. So I didn't put on till didn't die the next morning. Saying brachot, I, I had to sort of watch myself. Uh, but there's certain brachot that come like that. So saying shakol over water, I do without thinking about it. Asha Yatsar, coming out of the bathroom. There's brachis that come out of the bathroom. I don't think about those things. Maybe I should. But I had to really watch myself not to make those brachot without thinking about it. Then came Friday night, and I'll just go back to shul because that's a public thing. There's no public aninut. No public aninut. And then Saturday night, you go back to that again. The funeral is on Sunday. So I, I, I noted all these things. Uh, you know, and I, I'd written about it, but it's very different writing about them and actually walking the path of the mourner. I'll tell you a little secret. When I was sitting Shiva, uh, I'm going to diverge for just a moment. When I was sitting Shiva, I actually went and read my own book during Shiva. I'll tell you a little secret. It didn't speak to me. This passage of Rabbi, I'm going to show you the passage right now. Uh, the passage that I wrote about Rabbi Soloveitchik. Let me see if I can find it here. One second. Um, I have to go back to screen sharing. Where did, where did screen sharing go? Here we go. Here's one of the things that an author gets to do. You get to quote yourself. So here's my quote, Ozerowski's quote of Rav Soloveitchik. I knew it represents the spontaneous human reaction to death. It's an outcry. It's a, you can read this for yourself as we talk about this. According to my analysis of Rav Soloveitchik, life has lost out to death when you experience a loss. Um, so that's according to Rav Soloveitchik, why you don't do positive time-bound mitzvot between the time of death and the time of the funeral. Therefore, the halacha has tolerated these crazy torturing thoughts and doubts. It did not command the mourner to disown them because they contradict the basic halacha doctrine of man's election as king of the universe. It permitted the mourner to have his way for a while. Basically, you're angry at God. And Rav basically says, if you're angry at God, you don't have to pray to God. Now, I read this during Shiva. I reread this, what I wrote, and Rav and it didn't speak to me because I wasn't really angry at God. My dad was 96, Holocaust survivor, who survived everybody and lived a wonderful life and was a wonderful father. And I wasn't angry at God. He died the way he wanted to die in his own bed with the dignity that he, the Nazis denied him. And uh, he got what he wanted. Even after he was on hospice, he lived for another two years after he said another year or two of life would be very nice when we put him first on hospice. So I wasn't angry at God. And I realized a really important teaching based on this Aninut um, that writing and teaching about loss and bereavement is not the same as walking the path of the mourning. Um, I, that's what I learned from my own Shiva and from 
rereading my own stuff that just didn't speak to me at all, which is an interesting experience. One other little piece I'll share with you here, the Hebrew root of the word um, aninut is aleph vav nun. Um, and you don't have to be Rabbi Soloveitchik or Rabbi Osorowski to do what I'm about to describe. Any of you could do this. Go to a concordance, go to a biblical dictionary, look up this shoresh. You will find what I found actually, that in these three letters, you will find all of the classical, what are called the stages of bereavement. And I don't like that term because the current literature on bereavement says there really aren't stages. It's not chronological order. We don't poskin like Kubler-Ross. There are aspects of bereavement. So let me use that term. You will find all the aspects of bereavement in those little words, denial and bargaining and a pleading and all those things. You don't have to be me to do that. You can just, anybody can do that actually. And you will find what I find. That is Aninuit. That is what it comes from. And it comes from this particular passage. Um, let's go back to the text. There's some more halacha that comes out of the text. Let me see if I can go back to that very carefully. Notice here in verse six, what Moses says, do not let your hair go loose. Do not tear your clothing that you die not. How do we learn the halachics of Aninut from this passage? Tearing the clothing is something that we do in our morning rituals, we will tear an actual object of clothing. Some people prefer a, a ribbon, but the idea of tearing is, an, is, is a, a very graphic aspect of the loss that we are sort of role-playing. Tearing represents the tearing of the loss, tearing of the relationship that we had and letting your hair, your heads go loose. So during Aninut and Shiv afters, we don't shave, we don't take haircuts. Moses saying to Aaron, don't do those things. Don't let your hair go loose. Don't tear your clothes. Why is Moses doing this? Let me just finish the halachic piece and I'll answer my own question here. The reason is that um, uh, in Moses' uh, view, the show must go on. In other words, this was not only a personal event, this was a national event and the dedication of the national shrine had to continue and it had to go on. Uh, and so Moses says, don't do these things. You'll get to them some other time. The rest of us will mourn, but the show has to go on. Now, before you think this is unsettling and, and difficult, and you're right when you say that, but think back, any of you who were alive when Kennedy was assassinated in, in President Kennedy in 1963, and you may recall, I was a kid, I was, I think, uh, 11 at the time, but I remember seeing it on TV, um, we were in school and at home, is that very quickly they swore in Lyndon Johnson and he became the president, not in an, in an inauguration that he would have wanted, not like his other term in 64, but the show had to go on, the nation had to go on. And that's a very loose, but rough parallel to the fact that Moses is saying things have to go on and we have to uh, continue the nation, the, we have to dedicate the sect, is hold on to your mourning. But from the exception to the rule of what Aaron is saying, of Moses saying, don't do, we learn the rule. Hirsch points this out in a number of other cases in the Torah, which we don't have time for uh, today. So from Aninut into Shiva, we don't shave, we don't take haircuts, we don't groom, we don't bathe. All that stuff is built on here. The tearing of the clothing, that's still part of ritual, of Jewish ritual today in one form or another. We still do this. This is the source. This is the biblical source for it. This is what, the, this is what we learn from it. Okay. Any other questions or comments before I go on to the next stage? All right. I'm just, I just want to go back. To, I don't want to stop sharing, but um, 
uh, if you have any thoughts, speak out right now because I can't see, I have to sort of minimize the screen to get to the text. Okay. Now let's talk about the pastoral piece to it. Okay. So we talked about the national aspect to it and we talked a little bit about uh, the pastoral piece. I want to go more deeply. Okay. Uh, Moses gives this very strange thing. Look, look what Moses says, um, verse three. Let's, I want to go back to verse three. This is what God said, through those that are near me shall I be sanctified, and before all people I be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. Vayidom Aharon. Here we go. Vayidom Aharon. Aaron held his peace. Now, this is a really interesting passage, okay? What does it mean he held his peace? It means he was quiet. He didn't respond. doesn't have a voice here. Now, there's, again, a school of thought, and Rashi brings this down, and it's how, when I was in yeshiva, this is how I understood, how I was taught it, essentially, that, um, oh, wait, there's a chat here. Uh, King Charles be, uh, became the monarch. Yes, that's a great, thank you, Laura. That, that's a great passage. Um, when Queen Elizabeth died, tragedy for the entire UK and the British nation, but King Charles became the king, and so there was some joy there as well. Great parallel. Thank you very much. Now, Aaron's personal reaction was he was quiet. Uh, Moses is trying to comfort him. Whether this is a good source of comfort as a chaplain, I am not sure. I will criticize Moses a little bit more later on. Um, Moses, but Aaron holding his peace. So Rashi and a number of commentaries quoting the Midrash and the Talmud are suggesting that um, Aaron didn't want to wreck up the ceremony and he held his peace and tried to accept the tragedy that had occurred to him. Uh, and for this, according to Rashi, he was rewarded. Shatak Mekidel Schar are Rashi's own words. In other words, one approach to loss, even a serious loss like this, is that we, we hold our peace and, and we try to accept, and that is an approach to it. Um, but it is not the only approach. I'm going to give you another approach to it. Um, this is the approach of the um, Kutzker. The Kotzker who pointed out, look at the Hebrew here, Vayidom Aharon, and Aaron is quiet. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, then you know that um, there are several words for quiet in Hebrew. There's Sheket, as in Sheket, Vakasha, hey, right? And Shtika, and, and, but Duma is an interesting word. And if you know a little bit of Hebrew, look at the word Duma, Vayidom. What word is in that word? Anybody know? Can anybody figure it out? Speak out if you know. Unmute yourself and say, what word is in there? Dumb. <laughs> Dumb. Blood. Dumb. Excellent. Blood. Yes. And the Kotzker says this is intentional. The Kotzker calls this a blutiker de mama, a bloody silence. This is a very different approach than the one Rashi and the rabbinic tradition gives us. Not a quiescent passive silence, but a bloody silence. Aaron may have been in shock. His blood may have boi been boiling underneath. He is not quiescent. He is not passive. Um, and this is also a valid approach to loss. Sometimes you are angry and boiling blood. You know, this is a terrible tragedy. Why did this happen? Why am I being punished? Why, why is this going on here? So there are these two approaches, dumb and a blutiger to mama. Okay, um, is Aaron trying? And it's possible that both approaches are correct. Aaron may have been trying to accept 
the loss at the same time he was angry about it. From a pastoral perspective, these are both absolutely valid approaches. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can't change the feelings, but they're valid feelings. They can certainly be uh, options, uh, perfectly acceptable either way. Life and death, um, do we accept midat hadin? And by din, I don't mean judgment. I mean the fact that uh, din means God creates the world a certain way. Rule number one is that people get sick and people die. And rule number two is you can't change rule number one. And sometimes that hits us very, very hard. And there's no explanation. And I've quit trying to figure out the explanation, frankly. When I deal with loss in my clients, in my pastoral work, um, I've quit trying to figure out what's in God's briefcase, because frankly, I don't know. And frankly, neither do you. And frankly, your Rebbe doesn't, and neither is my Rebbe, and neither is anybody's Rebbe. We just don't know. Midat Hadin means this is just the way life is, and it's sometimes very, very tragic. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov noted three levels of mourning. The Baal Shem Tov, sometimes we cry. I don't, maybe level, I'm, not, I'm sorry, three forms. They're not levels. They're not hierarchical. Three forms of mourning. Crying, being anger, giving way to pent-up emotions. Number two is silence, being passive, being quiet. There's a gap. There's emptiness, the loss of a loved one. And he added a third one to it, which is song, music. And according to the story, his students questioned him on them. What are you talking about? You got to sing when you have a loss. And he says that we live on when we emulate the good qualities of the people that we've lost here on this earth. And when we do it by singing, this is Hasidic theology at its finest. It doesn't work for everybody, but it could work for some people. As a chaplain, I am not usually prescriptive. We don't tell people what to do. If they ask the halacha, I'll tell them the halacha. But I don't usually poskin that much, even though I, my, my, I have an Orthodox ordination and you know I, I can get away with that, but that's not usually what I do. Uh, I guide people and help them find resources within themselves. And so my job is to find the tools within the tradition, which is partly why I'm teaching this material the way I am teaching it. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go back to the text. I wanna skip to the end and then we'll have some time for questions. Uh, hold on. Uh, not all songs are happy. Yes, thank you, Judy. The blues. Um, and there was an article in either the Forward or the New York Jewish Week recently about klezmer being the Jewish version of the blues. And it's not always happy klezmer. There's sad klezmer too. So yes, yes. Expression of the blues. It's part of our tradition as well. And um, we can definitely share that. Thanks very much. Appreciate that. All right. Let's go back to the text. Let me finish up the text here. And I have to go back to screen sharing here. Let's move on to, there's some other stuff that's in here that doesn't seem to fit, but let's go to verse 16 here. And Moses diligently inquired about the go to the sin offerings and it was burnt. Before I tell you what happened, I want to point something out, a little bit of trivia here. Darosh, darosh, darash, the word darosh, darash. Um, according to the Masoretic text, this is the halfway point in the Torah. This is halfway, I believe, in the words, halfway through the words. There were rabbis who lived in places like Tiberias, Tiberian Israel, who had nothing better to do than to count the words of the Torah. I don't have time to do that, do you? I don't think any of us do. But they counted the words, and this is halfway through the words, darosh, darash. It's right in the middle, halfway. And every shul rabbi does at least one sermon on this sometime in his or her 
career, okay? Uh, I won't give you the sermons I've given on this topic right now. They don't relate to our topic today. But let's go on. What happened here? So the, 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 goal, the, the burnt offering, the sin offering was burnt. And Moses got angry with his other, the remaining sons of Aaron. He's saying, Why didn't you eat it? It's most holy. You're supposed to have eaten it. How come you didn't eat it? The show has to go on and you didn't eat it. Verse 18, the blood was not brought. You were supposed to eat in the sanctuary. This is what you're supposed to do. What's going on here? What's happening? And finally, in verse 19, Aaron finally finds his voice. Listen to these words carefully. And Aaron speaks to Moses saying, Look, this day, they've offered the sin offering and the offering before God. And these things happened to me. And if I had eaten the sin offering, you think God really would have liked that? You really think God would have liked that? You think so? You really think so? So um, Aaron finally finds his voice. And um, now there are a couple. Well, let me finish this, then I'll give you the explanations. Vaishma Moshe and Moses heard it, and he accepted it. It was well-pleasing to sight. Um, I'm going to analyze this textually, first of all, and then I'm going to get to the pastoral aspects of it. Notice that the words for Aaron's reactions, Hashem, would it have been well-pleasing in God's sight? And Moses' response, it was well-pleasing. They're the same words. So uh, Moses reflects, Aaron, Moses ref, or the text, I'd say, Moses doesn't talk here. Moses kind of reflects Aaron's feelings. That's number one. Number two, Aaron finds his voice and Moses is silent here. It doesn't say, what Moses said. He just accepted it. The, the, the roles have been flipped here. Aaron finds his voice and Moses shuts up. Now, let's go a little bit deeper and then we'll have some time for uh, questions when we are uh, done here. Now, when I was in yeshiva, the way I was taught this passage, Rabbi Soloveitchik actually teaches it this way and a lot of people teach it this way. Uh, I'm going to um, stop the sharing because I think I, I'd rather see your faces and then, but we're going to talk about the text here. The way this was taught was as a machloket, as a halachic dispute on whether an onain, whether a mourner can eat a sacrifice. And Aaron and Moses were having a halachic dispute. This is a very yeshiva approach. And that's how I was taught when I was a yeshiva student. And yeah, you can get into it. It's this, it's that. That's what they were arguing about. But in my role as a chaplain, I have a much different approach. It's much simpler. It's closer to the text. And I think it relates more to life. What do I say? I say, basically, Aaron is saying, my brother, don't you get it? I just lost my boys. I just lost my two sons. And you expect me to follow this, this ritualistic, you really think that's what God wants? You really think that's what God wants? And Moses ends up saying, you know, you're right. Yeah. He doesn't even have to say it. He just kind of nods his head. So looking at Moses's approach, of course, as a chaplain, it's a terrible approach. That's not what a chaplain does. If he's the rabbi of a shul where halacha plays a very important uh, role, uh, one can understand that even that, rabbis are supposed to be pastoral too. I'm speaking as a former congregational rabbi. 
And when I was a shul rabbi, part of my goal, when I first wrote the first book, To Walk in God's Ways, I actually didn't write it as a chaplaincy text, although it's become that. If you look at CBE courses, um, it's often on the uh, reading list. When my youngest son, Rafi, was doing smicha at YCT and took his unit of clinical pastoral education at the Jewish Theological Seminary, it was my, his father's book was on the reading list. So I'm very happy about that. But I didn't write it. I wrote it for congregational rabbis and for congregational lay people that uh, there's another approach to these things. And I still believe that. So yeah, if you're, the halachic issues are important, but I think both closer to the basic sense of the text, as well as the basic sense of life, Aaron is saying, my voice is my brother. Are you nuts? Don't you have some compassion for me? I just lost my sons. You really think this is what God wants, that I should have to go through the motions of the ritual? And the end, Moses agrees with him. Uh, Rashi's understanding of that verse basically says, yeah, I didn't realize it. I'm giving you the English version of Hebrew. That's essentially what he means. So this is the pastoral study of bereavement. As you can see, we learn an awful lot of stuff from it. There's a contextual piece. There's a textual piece. There's a halachic piece. And there's a pastoral piece. The pastoral piece goes underneath it all. Um, Shmuley suggests that I leave some time at the end for questions. And we do have about eight minutes before the hour. I mean, I could rave and rant for another eight minutes, but I really would like to hear from you your reactions to it. Uh, there was one, uh, few things in the chat, okay. Thank you, Rabbi Ezraski, this is wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, we'd love to hear from folks. Lauren, I see your hand up, you wanna jump in? Yeah, my only question is like, what would that say about Moshe if if he couldn't immediately see that his, his brother would be devastated at the loss of his sons? I mean, Moshe had children too. Was he so removed from? Sorry, Lauren, you got quiet there at the end. Um, oh, I understand it. I, I heard what Lauren said, and I'll repeat it, actually. Lauren asks a really good question. And the last piece is, was Moshe so removed from the family relationships dynamics that he, he missed this? I think I encapsulated your question correctly, Lauren. Let me answer the second part of the question first, because we know in many of the commentaries the answer to that. The answer is probably yes. According to Chacham, according to Chazal, according to Rashi, according to the classic commentaries, Moses was indeed removed from it. And we have proof of this in other parts of the Torah. Uh, later on, the whole incident with Miriam speaking badly about Moses' wife, and it's not clear if that wife is Sipor or if it's somebody else, but the commentaries say she was critical of her brother who had made himself apart from his wife. Why weren't they getting together? But without going more deeply into that, I think it's emblematic of the same thing. Moses did indeed remove himself from his family. Um, he removed himself from a lot of things. So he became the master teacher. He tried to love his people. He advocated for them on every part, but he was talking to God. God was talking to him. And so he may have been removed from some of the things that most of us deal with because he was this, you know, panim el panim, face-to-face navi, a face-to-face prophet. So Lauren, I think your point is well taken. And what you said in the last part of your comment, I think is the answer to the first part of your comment. Yeah, I think Moses was removed and didn't get it at first. So Moses may not have been able to make a good chaplain, an advocate for the Jewish people. Absolutely. Multiple times he argues with God for them. And at the end of his life, uh, Moses does say farewell, the, the parsha Vayelech Moshe, Moses goes uh, right before the end of Deuteronomy. And the question is asked, where did he go? It doesn't say. And a number of the commentaries say he went to say goodbye to everybody. So he did have a relationship 
but talking to God it may have very well taken him away from his family. So he may not, he may have been a great Rosh Shiva and a great Posek and a great teacher. He probably would not have made a good chaplain, and he's probably not the best model for pastoral care. You know who the model for pastoral care might be? I can think of a few of them, but Aaron is the first one who comes to mind. Aaron was the pastoral caregiver, the lover of peace, the pursuer of peace, the one who tried to bring people together, the one who cared. And interestingly enough, uh, people revered Moses, but Aaron was more beloved in many ways, even though Aaron was flawed too. The golden calf, Aaron kind of messed up with the golden calf. And yet Aaron may have been a better model for, for spiritual care. Great question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, are there any other questions? Give you a couple minutes. Okay, I'll throw this out there. Okay, just because. All right, um, is there a parallel? Um, you know, it's just where my mind went. We're talking about Moses being completely like, well, not completely, but pretty far removed from the people. Um, the when the uh, verse about, um, and I can't remember which one it is. I'm sorry, I have a head cold. But about the two um, sons. And um, I can't remember exactly what it said, but God, um, it's like the, is there, a, is there a chance that these two sons were well-beloved by God? And so because of that, though, they weren't going to be, you know, they, they were taken by God and everything. Could there be a parallel between that and Moses and also just, he's not really connected to the people because he is, he does have this particular role that is very special to God. I'm trying to think what the parallel might be. I mean, there might be. Could you explain more about what you had in mind in terms of the parallel? What was your thought? I was thinking in terms of some people who um, have, you know, even if the sons didn't actually fool with a certain level of holiness that they were not ready for, or if they did, it, you mm -hmm. know. But is it just something that is it inevitable that, hey, once someone becomes that close to God, that they sometimes remove themselves from people? Okay, that, that that that's a little that I can focus on that. Is it inevitable? No. Mm -hmm. Is right. it possible? Yeah. Is mm -hmm. it there's there is always a risk? Yes. That's how I think I would answer it. It's not inevitable. Nothing's inevitable. Mm -hmm. I know as a synagogue rabbi, I had to spend a lot of effort making sure that I didn't short shrift my family when I was serving my congregation. Mm -hmm. And so I had to make sure that I was home every evening for dinner. Um, once in a while there were dinner meetings, most of the time I had, there was a Hebrew school back in Pennsylvania and other shoals. There were other things that I was involved in. There were often dinner there were meetings afterwards, late minion, but between six and eight, I was home. Uh, when I came to Long Island, the shoal Long Island, New York, one of the first things I did was kill the late Friday night service. They had one. I killed it. Um, I just thought I want, I'm mean, once in a while we had, you know, Shabbaton and things like that. We had other things, but I thought that people should be with their families Friday night. And I wanted to role model that for them. So that was always a challenge. So the mm -hmm. risk is always there. There are things one can do, but Moshe spent all this time on Mount Sinai and all this time talking mm -hmm. to God. And according to a lot of commentaries, uh, people suffered. And I think that's often a case where sometimes, what's the old uh, line about the shoemakers, uh, children always go barefoot or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's the risk of the rabbinate. Um, and it's something we really need to work very, very hard uh, on. You know, both men and women who serve the Jewish people in, in, in these type of leadership capacities need to work very, very hard to make sure we don't short shrift our families. I appreciate the point. It's one I've lived through in some ways. So mm -hmm. thank you. Judy has her hand up. Yeah, there are, I, I think it's fair to say when you talk about your father's death at the age of 96, and Rabbi Grunwald talking about his son's death 
at the age of 13, there are different kinds of deaths. And I think our reactions are not going to be the same to every death. Moses lived to 120, Nadav and Abihu, not so much. I think that's a very valid point. I mean, death is death and loss is loss, but how that plays out in life differs. Everybody's experience is going to be different. There are all sorts of uh, contextual and other factors in a person's life because every because every life is different that means every death is going to be different as well the point is well taken so we're not learning this from this narrative we're not learning absolutes even the halachic pieces which are clearly you know cross the board halacha but but they don't always they're not always applied the same way halacha is is a guideline it's a framework uh even if you accept it as an absolute as far as behavior goes you still get to fit in in this outline yourself your soul your heart and things like that so it's going to look different my shiva would not look the same as somebody else who may be the same type of rabbi that I am, losing also a Holocaust survivor father, but the shivas are still not going to look the same because the people are not the same. So the point is well taken. And that's why you can mine this whole narrative for all sorts of different things, which is what I try to do here today and give you, you know, multiple aspects, multiple faces, maybe not all 70 faces of the Torah, but some of them at least. So I appreciate the point, Judy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I think I don't see any other hands raised and that's right about at our time. So um, I think I will thank uh, Rabbi Ozarowski so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to learn with you. And of course, I also want to thank our partners at HEA and Rabbi Grunwald for being here as well. Um, to let everyone know, our next program will be next Thursday on November 10th. We'll be joined by Rabbi Rachel Sabbath Beit Halachmi, and she will talk about rethinking gender and power in Jewish texts. Uh, that will be at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, so I hope you can all join us for that. And thank you all so much for being here today. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, everybody. Shabbat shalom early. Shabbat Take shalom. care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.